good morning. Great to see all of you across our campuses today. And for those of you watching online, we're grateful to have you as well. One of the most essential things that we do as a church is to gather together and worship. And that's what we're here to do today, to lift up the name of Jesus and to be drawn closer to him. So grateful to have each of you here today. Before we jump into the message, let me just give one piece of New City Family news. I want to talk about our app again. Many of you have downloaded the app, but I just want to make mention of it one more time uh, to remind you that we have an incredible communication tool that you can download on your Android or iPhone devices, wherever you get your apps. It's the New City Church app, and you can find announcements there every single week, the things that we talk about up front and even more that are happening across our church. And there's a lot of things happening that we want you to know about so you can be updated there. You can find sermon notes. Uh, don't know if you know it or not, but you can find study questions and, and a guide that goes along with every single sermon to go deeper in your understanding and your study. So you can do that individually. You can do that as a family around the dinner uh, table. You can do it as a new city group and go further with the weekend messages. We'd love for you to do that. There's outlines on the app. So if you're a, a blank filler inner, you can do that on the app. You can take notes and email it to yourself. You can email it to someone who couldn't be here. And of course, you can go back and find all the messages uh, from before. So just wanna encourage you if you haven't downloaded the New City app to do so. And if you have, to be regularly opening it and checking it on a weekly basis. Again, it's one of the major ways that we communicate. Really grateful to be with you today, excited about what God wants to do in our midst. Let's come before him in prayer as we jump in together. Let's pray. Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is the day that, that you have made. You created it, you thought of it before it ever happened. So we together as your people, we gather in this place to rejoice, to worship, and to be glad in it. And we're so grateful for this day that you've given to us. We're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day. And we're grateful to gather as a community of Christ followers to bring you praise, to lift up your name, to worship you, to enjoy community with one another, and to leave this place recommitted to serving one another, to serving our city, to serving our world. And we pray for our world today. We pray for our friends and family members especially who might live in the Nashville area. We remember them this week and we ask that you would comfort them, that you would give them renewed hope and strength. We think about those who are suffering in our world today, especially as we, we read the news, sometimes on the hour, about the coronavirus and the spread and the anxiety and the worry that it's created. And we pray today as Christ followers gathered in your name that you would bring peace that passes understanding. Help us not to be anxious. You haven't given us a spirit of fear. Would you instead give us a spirit of wisdom, of calm, of looking to you, Jesus. We intercede and we pray for those who are caregiving, doctors and nurses. We ask that you would give them strength and wisdom and insight. We pray for our leaders today. Your word tells us we should pray for our leaders. So we intercede for all of our leaders that you've placed in authority over us. We ask that you would give them wisdom that comes from you and understanding. And we especially today pray for those who are suffering, that you would care for them, that you would comfort them, and we pray for their healing. Father, you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. We love you today. We ask that we would look to you, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we give you glory for him. In Christ's name, and all God's people said together, amen, amen. We are studying the book of John. We've been walking through the gospel of John, and specifically, the miracles that are recorded in the gospel of John. And so I wanna encourage you, as we're walking through this series, to be reading the gospel on your own. We're gonna be in John chapter four today, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, I wanna encourage you to go ahead and flip over to the gospel of John. Again, if you're following on the New City app, you can just open it up to the sermon outline and the passage is already preloaded there for you to take notes and follow along. Many commentators have referred to the Gospel of John and the Book of Romans as the two towers of the New Testament. It's a powerful testimony about Jesus, about who he is, being the ultimate revelation of God to us in his words and his works. And so we're looking, again, specifically at the miracles that Jesus performed, those that were recorded by the evangelist John for our benefit. And as we started the series last week, and if you missed it, you can go back and listen, but as we started it, we talked about the purpose that John wrote for all the miracles that were recorded. It's found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I brought a slide for you to see it. I want to read it to you because this is the purpose statement that John says that all the miracles were recorded, the reason why he chose to write these down. He simply says this, and again, this is after the final seventh sign, the resurrection, which we'll cover on Easter weekend together as a church. After the resurrection, John writes the purpose for all the signs. He says, now Jesus did many other signs. It was more than just the miraculous seven. He did those in the presence of the disciples. In other words, they were eyewitnesses, which are not written in this book, John writes. But these, verse 31, John chapter 20, listen to this. But these are written so that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ in the Greek means the anointed one, the appointed one, the promised Messiah, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. That is the purpose of the recording of the miracles, not just that you would look at the miracles and say, those are really neat. Or or not just even that you would believe, but that your belief would lead to something, life, life in his name. And there is only one name under heaven and on earth which life is found, the name of Jesus. So John says, I want to write these down under the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit so that people for generations will read about these proofs that Jesus did not just so that they, be, they believe the miracles, but they believe the miracle worker. And by believing in Jesus, which is what God's calling each of us to today, beloved, that we would believe in Jesus for who he is, for what he's done for us, and that belief would lead to life in his name. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. How many of you want life today? We believe in Jesus and we're filled with faith, hope, and love, and life. But listen, we don't believe in Jesus and we don't have hope in Jesus just because of our hope or a quote-unquote blind faith. Are you familiar with that phrase, a blind faith? Our faith in Jesus isn't a blind faith. John and the other disciples and the the other apostles and New Testament writers wrote down what they saw and heard for us to see evidential proof of who Jesus was and what he did and who he longs to be. 
eyewitness accounts. John says, John chapter 20, verse 30, many other signs and wonders were, were done as a witness to the disciples. In other words, we saw it, and we're writing these down so that you guys can read about it and know who Jesus is. And not just know him and believe in him, but experience life in him. That's the whole foundation. Everyone watch this. The foundation of the Christian faith is belief in Jesus and being filled with his new life. We are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away, the new has come, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Jesus didn't come to make you better. Jesus will make you better. But he didn't come to make you better, he came to make you new. Christianity is not six steps to a better you. It's not a behavior modification program. It's a life transformation relationship by faith through grace in Jesus. We believe in him. We believe in his grace. We trust in him. We have faith in him. John records these signs so that this singular purpose might be accomplished in each of our hearts, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, we would have life in his name. So the first sign, the first sign is water to wine. John chapter two, and we talked about it last week. Again, if you have the app, go on the website, you can catch up. Jesus performs this first sign in a place called Cana. It's actually gonna be the place where the miracle is performed this week, the second sign. And we talked about the fact that Jesus turned water into good wine. And how many bottles of wine? Do you remember? 900. 900 bottles of good wine. And we said, that is a party, right? <laughs> and why did Jesus turn so much water into wine? Why, why were there 900 bottles of wine? Because it's symbolic of God's grace and his mercy and love. Every single drop that was turned from water to wine is symbolic of the blood that would drop for us to, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and to fill us with faith, with hope, and love. And God's love and mercy and grace never runs out. You can't out the grace of God, the love of God. So the wine that was turned from water is symbolic of the love and the grace and God lavishing upon us his mercies that are new every single morning, water to wine, the first sign. But there's a second sign, and it happens in John chapter 4, specifically in verses 46 through 54. So again, if you're not there, turn to John chapter 4, 46 through 54, and this is the second sign that Jesus performed in the gospel of John. It's known as the healing of the official's son. Let me read it to you, the word of God to you today. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 48, John 4. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour that he had begun to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew. This was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all of his household. This was now the second sign 
that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. May God bless his word to you today. Is there anything that you wouldn't do for your child? Is there anything as a parent, as a grandparent, as an aunt, as an uncle, as a guardian, is there anything you wouldn't do for your child? When you think back maybe even on your own parents or your parent or someone in your life that invested in you, that sacrificed for you, a grandparent, a teacher, a coach, someone that believed in you, that that went to great lengths to express their love, their concern, their care for you, is there anything that you wouldn't do for your child? The context of this second sign is a father, a desperate father, and a very sick child. The father is an official, we learn. He's an official in Herod's court, Herod Antipas. Herod was but a puppet for the Roman Empire in that region. So essentially, he's a Roman official. He's used to having everything he wants. Roman officials, and specifically, he lives in a place called Capernaum. So in Capernaum, in that place, he would have had great influence, great control. He's used to people coming to him and asking him for favors, He's not used to wanting or lacking for anything, but he's got a great problem. He's desperate because there's something in his life that he cannot fix. There's something he can't control. I wonder what that might be for you today. There's something that's beyond my grasp. I want to change it. I wish it was different but I can't control it. And more often, the more I try to control it, the more I feel it slipping away. Anybody relate to that? This is a desperate father. Yes, he's an official. Yes, he's important. Yes, he's influential. But at the end of the day, this is a dad and his boy. And he's desperate. Because the Bible tells us in the story that his son is sick, and not just sick, but at the point of death. And don't you know, as a father, he's done everything he can do. Is there anything we wouldn't do for our children? Uh, Doctors, uh, anyone who has any kind of home remedy, uh, anything that he can do within his control. Money is no object. I'll, I'll do anything to make my child well. Don't you know that he's exhausted all of his resources, everything within his control. There's nothing left to do. But he hears about this man named Jesus, this miracle worker. Maybe it was because of what happened in Cana in John chapter two, where all this water was turned to wine. That, that story will get around. Uh, Maybe it was because of Jesus going to Jerusalem at the Passover and performing other signs and miracles and other people believing in John chapter 2. The the news is getting around the region about Jesus as this great miracle worker, and it's his last hope. There's nothing else this dad can do. I've done everything. And so he begins a journey as a desperate official, as a desperate father. He begins a journey from Capernaum, where he lives and has influence, to Cana. I brought a map to show you the distance. It's about 24 miles from Capernaum to Cana, a full day's journey. And there's no Uber, there's no light rail. It's walking every step of the way. So he sets off. He sets off for Jesus. This official who's used to controlling everything, having everything at his fingertips, is out of control and desperate, and it drives him towards Jesus. 
Can you imagine what this must have felt like? Let's just, let's just step out of our bubble for just a second here. And let's just enter into this father's shoes as he walks from Capernaum to Cana, 24 miles, almost a marathon length. No stopping, not resting, going as quickly as he can to Jesus with his problem. What must he have been feeling, experiencing? Let's go even further into this, because this isn't just words on a page. This is a, a story. This actually happened. It was recorded. This is an actual historical event that was written down for our benefit. Can you imagine the goodbye of that father with his child? I've got, I've got to leave my problem. I've got to leave my challenge. I've got to leave my sick child, the thing that's causing me desperation. And I've got to walk 24 miles not knowing what, if I'll ever see him alive again. But there's no other way. There's, there's nothing else I can do. I'm desperate. I have to start walking. Any of you in a place of desperation? You ever felt alone on your walk and your journey to God? Your great challenge, your great problem, your great issue, whatever that might be, maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's a business thing. I, I, I don't know. You ever felt alone and desperate? And don't you know the question on the way to Jesus? This is the question that the Father must have been asking and the question I think all of us ask on our way to God, on our way to Jesus, is what is he gonna say? What is God going to do with my great problem? You know, desperation, to use that word, because I think this is a desperate man. And desperate times call for what? Desperate measures. I'm going to walk 24 miles straight to this man I've never met, this miracle worker, to see what he will say. Desperation creates space, guys, for faith to come alive and grow. And that's what's happening here in this 24-mile distance between Capernaum and Cana is this man's faith is beginning to, to stir. To, what, what will Jesus say? What will he do? Is he able to, to accomplish what I'm asking him? Can he save my boy? Jesus says in Matthew chapter nine to another group, he says, people who don't know they're sick don't know they need a doctor. He's not talking about physically. Spiritually sick. If I don't believe I have a spiritual sickness, a desperation that only Jesus can solve, then why do I need Jesus? Who are the people that consistently all throughout the gospels missed Jesus? Religious people. Why? because they thought their meritorious religious behavior would save them. They didn't think they had a need or a sickness. You don't need a savior unless you know you need to be what? Saved. And who are the people that, that run to Jesus and fall at his feet? Desperate people. We see a father who's desperate. Desperation drives people, doesn't it? And my experience as a pastor, as a, as a fellow sojourner on this journey with each of you, as my, in my experience, desperation always drives people. It drives people closer to the feet of Jesus or further away. And, and here's the thing. In my comfort, when I have everything in my world ordered, which is, which is the goal of all of us, right, if we're honest, put everything on my phone, everything in my fingertips, I can control my whole world and keep everything in its place, and I'm in control. And in my comfort, I'm able to see Jesus for who I want him to be. I can create Jesus into my image in my comfort when things are going well. I created Jesus that I'm comfortable with, 
that I can relate to that always says the things I want him to say, that pulls for my same teams. All of, all of my teams Jesus pulls for. He always votes the way that I vote. He, he always thinks the, the, the way that I think. And I can even just put him in my pocket here and I can carry him around. And then I just take little Jesus out when I need him and just use him however I need to. My comfort allows me to do that. But listen, my desperation will not allow me to see Jesus for who I want him to be. My desperation causes me to see Jesus for who he really is, for who he has to be, for who he claims to be, the Savior of the world and the Lord of all creation. All of the signs in the Gospel of John as we journey through these together, and I hope you'll be here for all of these, all of the signs from Cana all the way to the resurrection, all seven signs that are recorded have one thing in common. You wanna know what it is? Desperation. Physically desperate, spiritually desperate. Desperation, a space where only God can work. And that's where miracles happen. On my way to Jesus, all of us ask one question in one form or another. And the question is, what will God do with my sin, my problem, my challenge? What's God gonna say about this? What's God gonna do about this? And you wanna know what the answer is? Here's the gospel in a nutshell. The answer to our question, what will God say? What will God do? What will God think about my great problem, my great challenge, my great sin? The answer is the cross. And on my way back, which we'll get to in just a moment, on my way from Jesus, once I've heard his promises, once I've looked at the cross, once I know what God is going to say, on my way back, the, the, the question that all of us wrestle with consciously, subconsciously is, is it true? Does God have the power to actually accomplish what he said on the cross? And the resurrection is the answer to that. The empty grave is the answer to that. That not only is he willing, but he is able. Back to the story. The man makes it from Capernaum to Cana, 24 miles without stopping. He's tired, but he doesn't rest. He goes straight to Jesus, this great miracle worker that he's heard about. And he says to Jesus, I need you to come with me back to Capernaum right now, 24 miles, because I have a dying child. So stop saying and doing whatever you're doing and just come with me, please. Doesn't that sound like an official? He's in control. My shirt's coming up tucked. (laughs) He's in control. He's in control. So he does what people in control do, all of us. You come with me. I got, I got a problem I need you to solve. Jesus, just get here in my pocket and I'll take you, take, take, take you with me to solve my problem on my terms. We come to Jesus oftentimes. We come to faith, but we come to faith on our terms. I want to control God. And right here off the bat, Right? In, the, in, the, in the miracle narrative, we learn that this miracle is not going to happen on this official's terms. Jesus, in a very real way, is going to make sure it's clear to him that, yeah, I'm going to do the miracle, but it's going to be on my terms. And for many of you, that's what you need to hear today as we come to this miracle, that, yeah, you might come to, 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 to Jesus and you want to control him, you want to you have power over him, but you're going to have to humble yourself and realize that you're not in control, that it's going to be on God's terms. Listen to Jesus' answer to him. This is sort of striking. Verse 48, John chapter 4. The man says, I, you, you come with me, I, right? I'm in control. I'm gonna take take control of this. I'm gonna bring this miracle worker back to Capernaum with my authority and he's gonna do what I tell him to do. And Jesus says these words. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This is sort of, again, striking because you got a sick child, you've got a desperate father here. 
Come with me back to Capernaum. We gotta leave right now. We don't have any time to waste. 24 miles, we gotta get back. It's gonna take us a full day. My son may already be dead. We gotta leave. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And when we hear this, we can sort of, it sort of feels cold. It feels indifferent until you read it in the Greek. And in the Greek, the word you is not singular, it's plural. You say, Chris, what does that matter? What matters because the audience Jesus isn't speaking just to the official or about his child. He's speaking to all the Galileans who have gathered there in this place called Cana. And he's saying to them, you're in love with the miracle. You just want to see another sign. You're believing in the miracle and not the miracle worker. And the whole point of the signs and the miracles is what? John 20, 31. That you may believe Jesus and be filled with life. And so Jesus is making a statement that I'm not here just to do sign after sign after sign. Give us another sign, another sign, another sign. I'm here to do signs and wonders so that you may know who I am and believe in me and be filled with life. And, and I love this little moment here in verse 48, 49, because Jesus makes this statement to the, the, the crowd there that's gathered, not just to the Father, to all of them. And the Father's listening in, and he doesn't even, it, it just doesn't even phase him. He doesn't even flinch, and he just says, verse 49, I, I need you to come and, hear my, and heal my child. And he and Jesus are just sort of like, Jesus is making this one statement about miracles and the persistent faith of the father to continue to ask for his child. Yes, all that may be true, and I need a miracle. And I need you to come with me. Again, I'm gonna control the situation, I'm gonna bring you with me. And Jesus says in verse 50, go, your child will live. An incredible moment of compassion in the heart of Jesus for us. Go and your child will live, but now, think about this, now he's gotta do what? He's gotta turn around from Jesus, and the very thing that he came to Cana from and walked 24 miles from, he's gotta leave without. What did he come to Cana for? Jesus, you gotta come with me. Now he's gotta walk back by himself, no one else is recorded in the narrative, and he's got to wonder the whole way, the same thing that we wonder when we hear the promises and claims of Jesus. Is it really true? He's got to step by faith towards his miracle without knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, and so do we. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you know how your prayers are going to be answered? That, that space in between your prayers and between the reality is the space where faith comes alive, where we've got to trust God, where we've got to believe God. That space in what Jesus has said and what I see is where, where faith comes alive. Are you with me? Jesus has said this, his promises, but what I see with my eyes and my reality, they don't match. And how do I fill that space and that distance? The space in your life between God's promises and, and your problems, let me say it that way. The space in your life between God's promises and your problems is the space where faith can come alive and flourish and grow, but make no mistake, so can cynicism, so can doubt. Jesus asks us to believe, to trust him. So the official believes the word of Jesus. Look at the passage here, verse 50. Jesus says, go, your son's gonna live, and the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. If you are underlining on your Bible, underline verse 50 or highlight it on your phones because this is where everything flips. He chooses to do what? I'm not in control anymore, Jesus. 
the very thing that I wanted, which was for you to come with me and I'm in control, now I've got to place my faith in you, that your word is enough, your promise is enough. I've got to take you at your word and I've got to begin the journey back to the miracle. I've got to begin the journey back home into my future, not knowing what is ahead of me and how God's going to answer, whether it's in, in this realm or in eternity, how God's going to answer my prayer and his promise. Don't you know that every step on the way back to Capernaum as he's walking into his future, not wondering what's gonna be in front of him, he's also thinking, is my child even alive? Is all this even true, what Jesus said about me and about my child? This miracle, can I really believe him? What's going to happen? And in that, he chooses, and belief is a choice, guys. He chooses to believe and take Jesus at his word, and he starts walking home towards his miracle, not even knowing what's gonna happen. His servants meet him on the road, the Bible says. And they begin to share with him the news that his child is recovering. But before they say anything, don't you know, again, let's put ourselves in, in this official, in this father's shoes, as he's walking home step by step, 24 miles. He will have walked 48 miles in less than 48 hours. Desperate. Wondering, and as he sees his servants appear on the horizon, don't you know that he's wondering what they're going to say? What news are they bringing to me? Is my child already gone? What are they gonna say? And of course, the servants say, your boy's getting better. He's recovering. And, and this, to me, is, is, is just incredible in the story. We don't read any reaction of the father. There's no reaction recorded. All of that context, everything that's happened so far and on his journey back, and now the servants say, your child is recovering and we read no reaction. I'm sure there was a reaction, but nothing is recorded here about the father's response. He just wants to know one thing. What is it? What does he wanna know? When did it happen? When did it happen? And don't you know the servants are like, what a funny question. First of all, Jesus isn't with you. You told us you were going to get Jesus and he's not with you. But now we tell you that your boy is recovering and the only thing you really care about or wanna know is when it happened. And the servants say, well, it was, it was yesterday. It was yesterday. About the, I don't know, about the seventh hour. And the father knew. Look at verse 53. Now it's not an official. Look at how John chooses to record this. It's not the official, it's not the man. How does he refer to him? The father. At the end of the day, this is a miracle, a sign about a father and their child. And John captures that for us. The father knew that this was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now watch what happens. And he himself believed in all of his household. He goes from believing the word of Jesus about the miracle to believing in Jesus. Jesus wasn't just a great moral teacher. Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker. He was those things. But Jesus is Savior and Lord. And we don't believe in the miracles. And we don't just believe in his words. We believe in the heart of Jesus and who he is. This man goes from believing the miracle to believing in Jesus, the miracle worker. 
And make no mistake, it was the official's desperation, the father's desperation that led him first and foremost to Jesus. It was his desperation that caused him to walk 48 miles to Cana and back to Capernaum. It was, it was his desperation that caused him to, to believe and to be open to the work of Jesus because desperation creates space for faith to come alive and to grow. When you read along in the Gospels, and I hope you will as we're on this journey through the, through the Gospel of John, when you read along through the Gospel, and specifically in our passage today in one chapter before in chapter three, you're, you're gonna read about three different people. Go read John three and John four this week. You're gonna read about a religious man, a Pharisee, who comes to Jesus in the dead of night because he's afraid about what other people will think about him. So peer pressure doesn't just end in middle school. This is a, a grown man who's a Pharisee who comes to Jesus because he's afraid of what other people will think. So he comes in the middle of the night and he asks him, you're, 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 you're talking about, about people being born again and how can I be born again? And Jesus begins to explain to him about belief in him and, and trusting him. And then he says these words, John 3, 16, maybe the most famous words in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would have life everlasting, would never perish, but instead have eternal life. Wow. Then John 4, we, we come to a, a woman, an outcast woman, a Samaritan woman, who would have been considered unclean in so many different ways, and Jesus sits with her to well, something that, that no one would have done in the middle of the day, and Jesus does it right in front of everyone. And he begins to interact with her. And she says, you know, I have to come here every day and, and get water out of this well. And he says, how about I give you a water that'll never run out? How about a spring that'll come from inside of you that'll give you eternal water? And he begins to explain to her belief and faith in him. And then we come to the official here at the end of John chapter four. And again, believing in him, not just for the miracle, but for himself. What do all three of those people have in common? A Pharisee, right? A Samaritan woman and a Roman official. You couldn't have a more diverse group of people. But what do they all have in common that we all have in common as people? Desperation. They're all desperate. And, and we see the beauty of the gospel here that Jesus is for everyone. That the gospel is for everyone. And that our great problem, right? Our great problem, our sin, our brokenness is resolved and solved and healed in God's great promises, Jesus himself. It's our desperation that creates space for our faith to grow. So let me leave you with just a couple of questions, three questions just by way of application before we leave today. As you continue to meditate on this second sign in John 4, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. The first is, what is your 24-mile journey today? I wonder for you, not your neighbor, for you. I wonder for you, what is your journey right now? We talk about this 24-mile journey from, from Capernaum to Cana and then back to Capernaum again, this, this distance, this space. What does that represent for you? Are you on your way towards Jesus, wondering what he'll say, what his promises are? Are you on your way from Jesus? You've heard his word. Now you've got to decide, do I really believe him? Is he really able? What is your journey? Maybe another way to get at it, the second question is, what are you desperate for? You know, we spend our lives trying to avoid that, that word, desperation. 
And yet, desperation is that place and it creates that space where faith comes alive and grows. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're gonna see the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who who know that they have a problem, that they're sick, because they're gonna be the ones that see me as their great healer and redeemer. What are you desperate for? What is it that only God can do The prayer that you might be persistently praying, God, if you don't come through, I'm through. This person is through. What are you desperate for in your life? What are you trusting God for? Here's the last question, and maybe the most important. Who or what are you filling that space of desperation with? Because that space of desperation, that 24-mile journey for you on the way to Jesus, from Jesus, is gonna be filled with faith in someone or something. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times we fill that space of desperation with our own effort and energy. I'll just work a little harder. I'll just be a little smarter. I'll just do things differently. I'll I'll try it a different way. I'll take control of it. Who are we placing our faith and our trust in? God is, listen, God, God is on his tiptoes today through this second sign, asking us to trust him. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? Will you look to me and not to yourself? The distance of desperation, if we can call it that, the distance of desperation that you are facing today is the very place and space where God wants to work the most in your heart. Because, because, because. Bottom line, desperation creates space for faith to grow. In our desperation, we open up our hearts in a way that we don't oftentimes do. We open up our hearts for God to move and work and enter into those spaces. And that's exactly what happens here in the story. And that's exactly what God longs to do in your life. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for your word specifically for the words and the works of your son, Jesus, that are captured here on the pages before us. They're not just words on a page. They're a recording of real proof and evidence of who you are, Jesus. So may these signs point us to Jesus and to the new life that is offered to each and every one of us through our belief in him, by grace, through faith. Give us the wisdom to understand what you're speaking to us today, God. And would you also, as we leave this place, fill us with faith to go and obey. We'll give you the glory for it in your name. Amen.